Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Jia Ng, who is from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra, Northwell. Uh, so very nice to speak to you today, Dr. Jia. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Chris. You, you uh, can how... call me Jia. Okay. Uh, well, how are things over in New York? I mean, I in on my way into work today, it was snowing, uh, even in the south of uh, Japan. How, how are things in New York right now? Uh, no, it's not too bad. It is um, around 30 degrees, which is zero degrees Celsius. Mm. So no snow. It's, it's still cold, sometimes windy, but most of the time it's pretty dry. Well, thank you very much for... for uh, braving these conditions to uh, to have the uh, interview today. Uh, the paper we're going to be talking about is uh, Parenthood During Residency, How Acts of Kindness Supported My Journey. And um, although this uh, podcast will probably be published in February, we're actually uh, recording a couple of days before Christmas. So to start on a positive note, um, can you outline some of the acts that uh, were considered to be kind and supportive uh in this uh, uh in the in the paper that you published right um so it was my first pregnancy and first child so um one was the attendings or the consultants being willing to um actually stop me and say do you need time to mm. pump do you need time to step out yeah. um and, and I, I had a lot of pride because I was the first intern who had child, who had a new baby for forever. And so mm. it was the first experience for them. So they did not did not really know what to do and how to do and how to support me. But you can see a, a full intention like um, to, to support me as best as they could. Um, and my colleagues, they, there were two camps. One was somewhat resentful because I had quote unquote extra privileges uh, but and and you know I had dips on when I could take time off because I was delivering and then the other camp was do whatever you need let me take your pager you go do what you need let me buy you lunch so that you can pump and write notes at the same time and eat lunch at the same time you know right. um, so th those were all the small I wouldn't even say small those are big acts of mm. kindness and and I felt so um supported during that time well it, it's one of the things that comes up quite a lot when we talk about um you know differences between men and women in in, in the workplace and also the the extra privileges that i that i personally believe should be given to women in order that uh you know we on a very basic level further the species mm -hmm. um it's you know, uh, someone who um, is as necessary as yourself in the healthcare space, but also necessary as a, you know, as a as a person within um, within society. You 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 talk about um, that there's an importance to normalize realities mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, redesign the system of employment to allow people to have leave and return uh in uh in a functional capacity um and also vulnerability seen as courage could you 
give a little bit more, um, could you elucidate a little bit more on those points? Sure. Uh, so the, the first one is because I was the first one and there were so few residents who, because we are technically training, a lot of people delayed their pregnancy and, and childbearing till, um, till they finished training. And so first, no, no, everybody do not have experience doing that. Um, even bringing up like, oh, I actually need time to come back to work mm. it, because the, the body is beaten up. And so I was slow. My, my thinking was slow. I was the star intern before I came back. And even within the first week I came back, I took only four weeks off um, maternity leave. And when I came back, um, a consultant who is fairly young, who does not have children said, oh, what happened to Gia? Um, why is she not efficient anymore? So, so some people who have not gone through it or even have experienced seeing that um, did not know that there's so many changes during that first few months or actually the first year of um, mm. after delivery. And second thing is personally, I was also uncomfortable using the word nursing, using the word I need to step out to pump. You know, that word sounded so so icky that I could not so that's what I meant by embracing the reality that yeah. be confident to say out the word even just the word itself um, mm. took me weeks before I could say oh I actually need time to step out to pump and then people started wow that is so brave that you actually use the word pump because um, surprisingly even in medicine um, we are mm. so sterile you know we are we, we as doctors we see patients in a very sterile way we we don't um, I, I think it's a coping mechanism. And so when I broke that barrier to use, uh, to be a patient, it, it mm. seemed um, uh, different. Right. I, I mean, I, I understand from, uh, obviously, um, being from the other side of it, but I, I have um, two children and I uh, fully respected my wife's uh, um, efforts during the time when we raising them i mean we, we've managed to have uh two children from five pregnancies and so it's been um something that i have in my in my own personal life had to accommodate uh and so i i understand well i, I don't understand from from your point of view but i i can respect uh the the way that you had to how to say uh that you the, the way that the way that you have um you know been required to live both of these lives um concurrently um uh, you also mention that uh that we should receive kindness and grace uh with gratitude um in high pressure situations such as uh you know a medical residency grace is something that i recognized um fairly fairly well in my personal social life. But uh, is there a, a different way that you viewed it in, in a professional sense that uh, you'd received grace uh, in a way that uh, aided you in your uh, in your professional uh, life? So in, in my professional life, especially during that early season after delivery, uh, when I came back was I was full of pride and was not ready to seek help because I want to maintain, I want to 
come back the same as before. Mm-hmm. And so I never seek help. Uh, I never sought help. And and um, what I did was I would wake up extra early so that I can come in earlier so that I can write my notes round earlier and take more time to pump in order to compensate um, instead of just seeking help saying, you know, this is a different season for me. So I need specialized uh, room so that I can do it in private. And at, at the beginning, it wasn't even offered to me because nobody thought it was, uh, it, it wasn't a need until I specifically requested for it. Mm. Um, then the more I asked, the more they realized, oh, this is, she needs that. And, and, and being able to um, take in the help, I think it was also a gift to others because they wanted mm. to help, they wanted to support me. If I keep saying no to them, I would be ungraceful. Uh, so, so that's what I meant by, you know, to, to give grace to, um, it's also important to receive the gift from others. So that was kind of at that season. And as I grew uh, more mature and became a consultant in my professional life, we, we receive a lot of grace from patients as well. Uh, for example, sometimes we may make the wrong diagnosis or we may predict the wrong direction. We say, oh, things will be fine and things don't get, uh, are not fine, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever reason. And we, uh, uh, patients will, um, they understand. So you explain, okay, this is the situation. Having good expectation is important, but if we do mess up, they appreciate that we take the time to explain what the real situation is and update them that things have changed and this is the the next step forward. Well, you, the the word you use there uh, is explain, and I I think I'd like to drill down a little bit more on that um, in relation to the TED talk that you did, um, which I uh, watched and I've already said to you that I'm definitely going to be using this in my in my classes because it it connects to what I try to do because I'm I'm more a, a qualitative analyst than I am a quantitative I'm not very good with math mm-hmm. um but but your TED talk was on the topic of data storytelling mm-hmm. which uh I appreciated because um you can give people all of the information all of the numbers uh, but they they don't know really what it means. And it's your job as a researcher to be able to, um, I, I wrote down here, it's not what you know, it's what you can sell. And that is basically what, what my takeaway from it was, like, you are the expert, you have the numbers, but what do they mean? Um, and so could you uh, give me some information on uh, where did you get the inspiration for that was going to be the theme of your TED talk we we don't normally get uh people who have this level of um uh outreach in terms of being able you know to be a to be a TED talker uh on the podcast so how did you come up with this theme and um in the elucidation of it is there anything that you um you could give some uh, tips and hints to other people who might be uh, in a situation who, you know, have to give a, a, a talk of this kind. Right. So, so the one I did was something called TEDx, which is not the main TED, which mm. is uh, TEDx is more independent and you have to submit individual application. 
So um, it is not as high level as TED, but still it goes through a rigorous process. Now, the reason I did that was, um, you know, all of us have a bucket list. And one day I thought, wow, it'd be so cool to be a TEDx speaker. And um, all I did was just Google how to do it. And so once I found out, okay, you actually have to go through a full step process, um, I hired a coach to guide me through the process and to teach me how to, yeah, to a coach to teach me how to think about the speech and understand what they like, what they don't like. So that was how I got started. Well, how but, how, how does how does that work? Like, uh, uh, there's a there's a TED talk coach. Yeah, yeah, there's coach for everything. So oh. yeah. <laughs> okay, there's a coach for everything. Yeah. So if you if you are interested in something like oh is that a coach for that and and so I found somebody oh actually it was through um it was through a membership group and some he he came to give a a, a talk on oh how do people get to TEDx. I think that was how it started. I'm like, wow, that's mm. intriguing. And and I want to get into a TEDx talk too. And so he he guided me through the steps. Um, as for the actual script, I wrote it out all by myself with some guidance and editing from them. Um, the, the, the topic I chose was I wanted something that has broad enough appeal, mm. but still have the same um, heart. It has to come from me because I love data. I love science, but I know not everybody loves that. And mm -hmm. I love academic writing. And what I realized was to transform from data to the final, pers the, the persuasive uh, argument was mm -hmm. the writing part and telling story. So that was kind of the story that, um, that, that I stuck to. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, the, the story about my parenthood, Actually, it started off as a Twitter thread where I wanted to share how uh, my experience was in um, during residency. And for some reason, it really resonated with um, the residents and it, it went viral on Twitter. And and so that was kind of my hook story in, in the TEDx mm. talk. Was that something that the uh, your coach recommended that it, it should be... you. you kind of base it in human interaction everything something that everybody knows and then you tell your story on top of that right he he says it has to be um it has to be a story that it, it, you can tell your own story hmm. but the element needs to be fundamental that all humans understand like storytelling or peace harmony that sort of theme but but it has to be something everybody knows but you tell it through your eyes. Mm. So that's the main difference of uh, on uh, how TED or TEDx is compared to how a research talk is because research is all about the data, the information, the niche part. But TED or TEDx is about um, ideas what's worth spreading. So it has mm. to be an idea that you can spread. It has to be something that, that people who are listening can hook their yes. own... Uh, experiences too and then think well I've been through this situation before and this is this person's experience of it right right so um it's it's kind of antithetical to the idea of um science because science is beyond human experience essentially it is uh it's what it is what happens while people are experiencing life if that makes sense um 
the the way that uh you know science and data presentations and papers as they are produced uh they're not really connected to real life so how important was it um when you're doing something like tedx to make it a personal story like how important was it your your coach telling you you have to make it connected to the people who are listening because otherwise they're not going to take in the message it to he said that's the most important thing it it has right. to be a story where even a non-medical person mm. um can 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 hear it and say oh i can relate to that because even a motherhood story right it you can be a parent you can be a son or a child you know motherhood is is universal um right. then there was another story of um in, in that uh, tedx was about me telling a story about a patient where um uh and also me not getting my my job uh struggling to get my job and so these are um themes that most people get, oh, I'm struggling to get my job because I'm actually not that good. Mm -hmm. right? In reality, I was truly not good enough. So, so these were universal themes. And um, I, I know it's a little bit different from how I write my research papers, but when I write research papers, I always have a um, end in mind. Like this paper is going to lead me to the next five things and how I'm going to transform this to my patient's um, um, um prognosis when i want to talk to them i mm. talk to them this is what this means you know when you have acute kidney injury how is your kidney going to improve how is it not going to improve even though our papers are dry and dull at the end of the day i use this data and i transform it to how i talk to my patient so even though um i wasn't trained that way um at the end i'm still trained as a physician mm. and so the heart is always with the patient yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, this is not a video podcast, so uh, I. Uh, but I'm. I'm. I'm furiously writing down notes here, and and the the word that I'm writing most is the word human, and the uh, as a physician, how important is it that um, you mentioned in your talk when people come to you and they have acute um, kidney injury or mm -hmm. there's there's something that that's that's not um, right with them, or they come in and say, do I need dialysis? I, mm -hmm. I know someone down the, the block who, who needs dialysis. Um, how much, uh, do you work on that human interaction one-to-one -one when someone is clearly, um, you know, not in a good way, how important is it for you to connect with them as a human, or do you try to keep it, uh, basically, um, uh, a medical practitioner one-to-one -one, just giving them the facts like uh, as a as a human being yourself mm -hmm. yes. um how, how important is that to you oh i i actually change it depending on the patient okay. so i i think because i have um practicing for around 10 years now mm -hmm. i've learned that some patients they want the touchy-feely side of things they want the hopeful story I'll read their body cues and, 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 and sense like, okay, they want that type of story. And then we have another type of patient 
that like just give me the facts don't give me any touchy feeling so I, i'll go back and forth depending mm -hmm. on how they are okay and those who are they love um uh the human side you know they don't want the medical term i will change the whole story in mm -hmm. uh, metaphors uh, analogies you know that that's why i tell my patients oh think about your kidneys like a gas tank all these sort of stories uh, it makes them understand and they can visualize um when this is particularly important when we are talking about bad news bad news like how your kidney function is because they are already thinking that they need dialysis so i immediately say don't worry you don't need dialysis take that mm -hmm. out of your mind first then i can start explaining Right. I don't go, I don't go like, wait, 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 let me tell you from the very beginning what's going yeah. on. Usually I try to say, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. You'll be fine. Let me start. Then um, if it's really bad news, like somebody who is at, already intubated, who is on life support, who looks like they are not going to last for a long time, then I go into more of the spiritual side and tell them things like, you know, um, medicine is only here for a few hundred years. We can try our best, but there are a lot of things outside of our control and a lot of things that are not, um, that we don't know. And so whichever you believe, if, if they have strong faith, I usually ask them, what do you believe in? And say, you know, um, we do what we can, but um, only God's will. So so I do change depending on the situation and, and how um the the patients what type of support they need well let's let's talk about the story then um i to 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 put my my own um spiritual beliefs on uh, while while we're talking i am catholic mm -hmm. and i um i i do believe that um there is a god mm -hmm. and that um uh, that he he is he is here on earth but also we also uh, we we have we also have um personal responsibility so um when do you uh make that switch i mean and like i like i said the, the most important thing um that i got from your initial responses was it's the human interaction how uh, do you make that determination of whether you're going to speak to them uh, medically or merely socially or spiritually? Right. Um, a lot of times I do combine both. Mm. I will start off by saying, this is the statistics. This is what we know. Uh, this is what medically, all right? And the problem with statistics in medicine is that it's population-based. So it's going to say, oh, 60% chance of dying, right? It doesn't mean that you individually, 60%, mm. you can die or 40%. Statistics run by, among this 100 people in this situation, 60 of them will die and 40 of them may survive. So that's how I talk about risk as well. So mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, in this situation, 60% means 100 people under undergoing this situation. How many? 90% are not going to survive out of this. 10% will, 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 uh, will survive, mm -hmm. right? I'll start off with that. Having said that, then I'll sense 
and and depending on um, how much rapport or how much the, the relationship we have with our patients, then I will know whether how spiritual they are. Um, or at that point, I will ask, okay, are you spiritual? Um, do you believe in God? Um, uh, that that's the time where I kind of ask op open ended question to to mm -hmm. get a sense of um, yeah yeah spiritual beliefs. And based on that, if if they were to say, I am. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that. But still, my kidney function is, you know, sixty uh, percent chance of of dying within the next year. How, how do you how do you address that? So so, patients will always believe that there will be that special one until the time comes. We always do. Like, even though it's ninety nine percent, we'll say maybe I'm the one. You know, yeah. can escape this. Most of the time, that's the case. And my job as a kidney doctor is not to fight with them, but to support them and meet them where they are. So that means if they say, yeah, sure, you could be the one. I agree. You could be the one. And so my goal is what can we do to slow the progression and to hold you as long as possible so that you can avoid dialysis. So that's my job. And I want you to be my partner. Let's do this together. So, so that's how I approach it. So I've written down here risk and statistics, because that was something that, that you brought up uh, previously. And this is something that I notice even in my very, very low risk area of sociolinguistics, uh, trying to um, incorporate the idea of statistics into uh, probability. Um, how do you explain to people uh statistical probability uh when most people in society don't have any background knowledge of it uh, and and this is this is what i i i noted from your from your tedx talk uh which is that you have to be able to tell the story uh could you give me some information about your uh development as a physician of being able to tell statistical stories to people who don't really understand um, or, or don't have a background in that area in order to help them make the best decisions. Right. Um, so first off, if saying is one thing, you know, people can't, they can't visualize how bad it is mm. unless you draw it out and show it out. So even when I say, I think that um, when, when people say probability and percent of risk and chance of dying, a lot of times it's basically one in 1,000. If I say one in 1,000, it's easier to understand than just mm. say 1% chance because 1% means nothing to me. Like 1% mm. of what? 1% of my arm, 1% of my body, right? So people don't understand the percent. So I like to say out of 100 people, two people will have kidney failure. So I like to say it that way. Or then sometimes we do those little charts where we, we draw people, you know, all the, the little stick figure figures, and then we sh show two, two will get into this issue. Um, and then sometimes we also talk about extremes of risk because um, when we talk about risk, like, oh, kidney biopsy, what are the risks, right? Um, the, the most common risk is bleeding. And most of the time, nothing happens. But the worst case scenario is actually death, right? Anything can cause death. So how do I talk about that? Then I'll say, 
very, very rarely, which means out of 1,000 kidney biopsy or 100,000 kidney biopsy, there was one case, somebody died. And mm. then I'll explain what happened in this situation. And those were the days where people never do ultrasound. They just jab into it to get a biopsy. So, so I kind of give extremes so that they have understand, oh, okay, that's the worst case scenario. This is the best case scenario. And I'll say, okay, because you have no issues with blood pressure, you have no issues with bleeding, you are young, this and that, your risk is probably most likely at the lowest risk. So, so that way they, they feel like, okay, they can think about their worst case scenario and best case scenario. Mm. Um, uh, that would help. Also, sometimes we can um, do levers. Like, uh, um, you know how radio, you, you move yeah, up yeah. and down. Like, um, so so we, we show them, okay, if you do this, things will go up or this will go mm. down. Sometimes mm. that helps. So I'm actually working with another um researcher qualitative uh researcher to hmm. see how people understand risk we are going to show them a sheet okay which is easier for you to understand is it by when we talk about percentage what if we show you this picture is it easier what if we say it this way is it easier so that we're trying to see what what makes it easier for people to understand uh, when we talk about risks and prognosis hmm. well and, and as a as a qualitative researcher and i agree with that um that modus because uh most people don't understand um numbers you can just give them numbers and say that like a number goes up number goes down mm-hmm. number goes down is good number goes up is bad but uh, what you're talking about in the intervening period is uh activities that affect number goes up number goes down mm-hmm. and uh, explaining that sometimes um people in the medical field or in the scientific field they they do a bad job of explaining it because most uh most people uh understand through action and reaction rather than charts and numbers so uh i would uh yeah i would would support i would support that approach and, and also um everyone out there uh, just you know listen to the qualitative researchers if you if you could um because because quant (laughs) quant doesn't always tell the whole story and and that's why i was uh, very interested in your in your uh ted talk because it's you know you have the numbers you've got the information but how can you explain it to people and make them change their uh lifestyles make them make better decisions uh, it all comes through the story. It's not through the numbers. Um, the thing I'd like to uh, move on to uh, is um, you are uh, a, a prolific um, producer of um, academic papers, and it's certainly something in the medical field. And and you and you. You, you mentioned you, you said a word uh, while we were talking in terms of it, it being dry that uh, medical papers can often be dry um but the people who are listening to this podcast are trying to i mean there 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 are various stages in their career but they might um not uh really 
understand how important it is for their career to actually publish. So could I ask you the question, uh, why should people be working on producing and publishing um, academic papers? Do you, do you have any um, rallying call for the people who are listening to actually do this kind of activity? Yeah, I, I have two parts. One is the purely um, career technical part, right? We, we like to say, um, we, we like to have this romantic idea, scholars just um, sitting and thinking about their thing. Ideas are cheap, right? Ideas are cheap. Execution, the final product, that's king. Because you can spend three years in your lab and not produce anything, nobody knows about your product, right? right? So, so the paper is the product and the currency in academia. That's how you exchange into grants and grants produce more papers. Papers produce more grants. That's the circle, that's the cycle and that's the currency. And that's just purely uh, the mechanics of why we need to publish papers. Then let's talk about the heart and soul of publishing papers. We, we publish papers because we go into academia is because we want to bring impact into the world, whether it's socially, linguistically, medically, we want to make impact. I became a doctor because I want to help patients. I realized I could only help one-on-one, -on -one, hmm. but when I publish paper, I can help a thousand at a time. If my research paper can change how the medical field does something, it means I'm helping thousand patients at a time. And so it's bigger impact. So that's the impact side. And then finally for personal um, career and fulfillment mm. is that I love etymology because the word authority comes from the word author, right? The more times you're an author, whether it being uh, um, on, on audio, on video or on paper form, Mm. The more times you attach your name to something, mm. you automatically become the authority in the field. And so a lot of times, if um, if if I do medicine for 20, 30 years, you know, I, I may have my little panel of patients, but I will not have authority. Right. Unless I am publishing paper, I'm the one giving, I'm the one speaking, because now I'm the author, I'm the creator then automatically I have um, authority. So, mm -hmm. so there's three parts, personal, tactical, and also the impact. And of those three, which one gives you the most uh, you know, personal benefit? When, when your paper gets uh, published, are you looking at it professionally? Are you looking at it personally? Are you looking at it longitudinally? um for other people to read and learn from Wh which of those gives you the most satisfaction so when i first started purely technical you know no heart and soul i just need to get published i need to get promotion i want to get the grant right okay. that time was purely tactical but as you do more then you realize that you're not just solving one problem you're solving its whole slew of problem like oh mm. actually i've solved this part but then there's a new problem coming up so I'm trying to solve another issue and after a while after maybe like five or six papers then I realized wow I built an area around this and I learned so much through the research that 
oh, I think I could probably design something to help that. And so even my research career, it was because of the first maybe five to six high impact paper. Mm-hmm. And through that process, I was doing a lot of literature review and found out, oh, actually there's an issue here that nobody talks about. And then so I designed a study that got funded. Mm-hmm. So that that is how like, oh, I can actually make a real impact, not just report on something that people did, but I can actually do create something to um, help people in the future. And did you get any feedback from it? Like when you went to conferences, did people come up and say, I read your paper and I made a change in my uh, professional behavior. Have you had that kind of feedback? Yes, uh, especially because my my paper, you know, the first few papers, they were smaller papers, but the impactful one was actually COVID. Um, mm. We were the, the first uh, one reporting on the rates of acute kidney injury among patients with COVID-19. Mm. And, and not only that, we showed the timing when things were happening. So a lot of hypotheses were, um, that were thrown out at the same time, like, oh, is it COVID attacking the kidney? And then when we, we did the study, we found that people who had acute kidney injury tends to be in ICU and occurred during the time right before or after they get intubated. That means right before they get life support. Right, right. So our hypothesis is that, hey, Maybe it's not the actual virus, but they are so sick that they need the intubation. And when they need life support, typically it also means that blood pressure drops. Yeah. And that's the most common reason for acute kidney injury. And and so that was like one. And people, we were, we were in the New York region. And mm-hmm. so we were telling the whole country, hey, we are seeing 20, 30%. You need to get your machines ready. You need mm. to get the dialysis fluid ready. You need to right. mobilize your staff. And people were doing all of these things based on our paper and talking to us. Um, so that was really impactful. So talking about impact, um, is there anything that uh, in order to improve the, uh, the, the uptake of recommendations that are in papers, uh, is there anything that you would recommend uh, writers do uh, to make sure that um, important uh, messages are more widely disseminated? Uh, to clarify your question, you mean when they are writing to make sure how how to write it well so that it's not persuasive, or after it's published, publish how to disseminate it. Well, 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 both those two, like uh, to write well in order that people take up their message, but also to get the message as widely disseminated as possible. So I think the, let's talk about the first one, writing persuasively. Um, the, the biggest game changer for me is to understand the importance of a research argument. So research arguments sound so foreign and complicated. Really, it boils down to a simple formula, which is, claim or statement Mm. plus evidence Mm. so when you have a claim you need to back it up with multiple evidence but your claim Mm. needs to be strong enough and it can't be wavy it needs to be you you must take a stand right you take a stand and then now you give your evidence so that's how you can be persuasive and second part into persuasive argument is to not just say what other studies are supporting our um our claim but how and why so it's yeah. the how and why that's the one that go oh that's why because people can 
you know, using AI or any special tools, you can always find evidence that support our statement. Mm. But it's the deeper thinking. That's where academics come in. You know, the thinking about mm. why is this happening? How? And then you start looking at other research papers. Oh, is it other study, uh, any evidence from a different field but have similar finding? Or, oh, animal model or qualitative. Mm. And, and quantitative, all at the same time, triangulation our um, our claim. So, so mm. that's important to, to be persuasive. So that's mm. number one. Um, and then with dissemination, it is to transform your writing into multiple. I, I like to think of um, you can repurpose your um, writing to, to many different forms. So you can repurpose to different audience. So that's mm. one cube, like one, one area. Mm. can repurpose in different lengths in different medium so like what you're doing the podcast that is one medium you mm. can make visual abstracts that's why now many research papers start having graphical abstracts and visual abstracts so you disseminate that you can also make it short form which is um twitter threads so um when when we first had a lot of research papers and wanted to disseminate it we will make twitter threads like abstract instead of a big chunk we were like this is what we found um uh why did we do this why did we do this study um mm. what were the limitations and these are some interesting findings right so so we, mm. we did like a series of uh twitter threads so that people could read it um and and then they would they will share and we found that the more times we retweeted and the more collaborators that do that um those papers got cited a lot more on that point, um, it's a more abstract kind of uh, idea, but uh, you know, putting things out on Twitter or Instagram or on uh, these other forums, do you think that uh, science-related uh, investigation is being diluted because of the way that we have to try to sell it to people who are not in the field no i i actually i i feel like as scientists it's our job to share what we find mm -hmm. there's no point doing everything and it's all locked up in be, behind a paywall and nobody knows about it right mm -hmm. the goal is to what's the goal of my especially my paper our research is all medical right the goal is to help um uh move science forward mm -hmm. what if a surgeon saw the Twitter, even though it's it's not um, his field. It's like, oh, he may think, you know what? I need to think about my my um, cardiac thoracic patients. What if mm. they get acute kidney injury because they do have, uh, things do happen? So I'm thinking about uh, when when we do these, we are not using layman language. We are just breaking it down so that other physicians are seeing it too. So it's more for cross pollination. Uh, rather than uh, changing the language into um, uh, um, layman language, which that one has a different format mm. too. You know, you can, you can, uh, there are some websites where you can talk about your scientific papers and you make it into layman language so that people, mm. uh, a journalist can can look it up and, and disseminate it and write articles about it. That's a different avenue. But mm. for me, when I do Twitter threads, that's more uh, still for the physicians um to to kind of finish our uh, uh interview today i would like to ask you about um 
based on that topic, where you think um, this kind of route of uh, making medical investigation more widely available to uh, the public, uh, do you think that this is something that uh, you as a physician should be focused on or is this something uh, as, as an individual or do you think this is something that um the wider medical field or the scientific field as a whole should be focused on getting connected to these um these nodes of um uh, institutional interaction uh is it is it your responsibility to do it or do you think that uh it is something that the, the 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 wider field should be should be doing to make sure that everyone has as much information as possible when making medical decisions for themselves um i i would say if if purely just the, the science, science um i i believe that it's the scientists who should work towards better communication so that people understand their research a lot better right in a way that people understand their the, the findings um which is not impossible because mm. when you see nature uh nature and does a really good job they they choose papers that are really well written for some reason papers that get published in lancet and nature the higher impact journals they are much well written um and and sometimes seem even more conversational than uh than the more niche field research papers so that's mm. my 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 observation and also I've seen many journals now have a small section called plain language summary that is that is that is for uh, patients and also I would say it's more for journalists so that people can take that snippet and and, and get to media. Okay. And then to answer your other question, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, whose job is it to make sure um, the the patient understands what we find in research? It's purely the physician's duty. The patient is not going to understand, right? It's our job to translate that so that they understand. I just want to ask you about the what you just said, like plain language summary. What what does that mean? So, so you know when you when you have a research paper, you have the abstract, okay? Yep. The abstract you have is pure. Is 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 really for scientists to screen to say, okay, is this paper worth reading? Right. And then now there's a newer trend where they have even a separate section they call plain language summary, and it's usually shorter, and it has to be it it has to be uh, written in a way that even it has to be written in a layman's uh, term mm. so that none medical person can understand. Right. And do you think that is a plus positive or a or a negative? for actual scientific endeavor i think i think it's positive okay. first is we are taking back control because the problem is media they they will read the whole paper and they probably find one sentence out of it and then spin it out of context right, right. at least this we 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 write the whole thing ourselves mm. and we are controlling the narrative and so i think this is bringing back the control uh, to the scientists and the medical field so that even if it's plain language 
we are seeing it in 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 within context, not spun out of context. And why is that important? Absolutely important because um, media. The goal is to create eyeballs, and anything that sounds controversial, anything that sounds um, exciting, they will pull. The more out of context it is, mm. the better it is for them because that is their revenue, and mm. so they they don't care how accurate it is. I'm sure they are ethical people but really how media works is the more eyeballs you have that's how money comes in are we sure they're ethical i mean i'm sure there are some people who are ethical. <laughs> <laughs> okay i, I don't i don't i don't, I'm I don't, I don't, I don't... I'm, a, I'm more of an optimist that there's good in people me too. I, I'm a positivist, and and that's <laughs> that. That's sort of it. So, uh, well, thank you very much for your time today, uh, uh, Doctor uh, Jia Ing. We've we've been speaking with Doctor Jia Ing from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra uh, Northwell. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, Doctor Jia. And I hope that we get the chance to speak again in the future. It's been a very uh, interesting conversation. Same here. All the questions were really insightful because I'm like, oh, I haven't had this sort of questions in a, uh, in a long time because people who I, I see all the time are medical people. And, and I'm assume, I assume this is what we do. And when you ask mm. all these questions, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've never thought about um, uh, the patient side and how do you make sure people ask questions? Uh, how how do you make sure people understand risks? And, and so that is creating a lot of excitement, especially for my new research project. Well, please keep in touch and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good day. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.